Hello, you are listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 0. You gotta start somewhere. This is the inaugural episode of Denver Orbit. Denver Orbit is a new podcast with a simple mission. We feature voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm your host, Josh Madison. Before we get started, I wanted to quickly note that this is a community-driven podcast, so as such we are actively looking for submissions. Maybe you've got a crazy story about that time your aunt tried to hire a hitman, or maybe you've got a song you've been recording in your garage. You have maybe a documentary story you don't quite know what to do with? Even an avant-garde sound piece, we're open to just about anything. Also, if you needed help recording, shaping, or producing a story, we can do that as well. So, drop us an email at denverorbit at gmail.com, or just go over to our webpage at denverorbit.com and fill out the contact form there. Now, with that business out of the way, let's get on with the show. We've got a few things lined up today. We'll hear an existential investigation from Twist and Shout's Paul Epstein. We'll hear a song from Mike King's project called Dormir. And finally, John Olson will share a selection from the paperback edition of the movie Footloose, read by Amy Mullen. So without any further delay, let's get to Paul and his story, The Emotional Wallet. Hey, this is Paul Epstein. I own a record store called Twist and Shout. I've been in the music business for almost 30 years, and in that time I've bought a lot of used records. Inside many of these used records, I have found a number of items. And there are items ranging from the most personal, private things you can imagine to large amounts of cash, drugs, photographs, private notes, all kinds of things. Uh, Early on in my career, I started saving these items and putting them in a file called Found. And here, 30 years later, I've started to amass these into some kind of order that makes sense to me. So in this podcast, I'm going to tell you about some of the items. I'm going to call it the emotional wallet. That's what records were to my generation of listeners and uh, the generation preceding me and probably the generation after. To people of my generation, when you bought a record and put something in it, the expectation was that this was going to be there forever with you for the rest of your life. Records were such an important an emotional and personal part of our self-identity that it seemed like anything you put there would always be there. It was a wallet for your emotional needs. I, I say this because over the years as I've found items that have fallen out of records, I've recognized that these were things that you would never in your normal day-to-day life want anyone else to see. 
They're very personal things. So the expectation was, I'll never not have Cat Stevens' T for the Tillerman album. I'll always have this exact album in my life so I can put things in there that will always be there and thus readily accessible to me. As we know, time changes adults and your priorities change. And as we also know, technology has changed. And therefore, there is an entire generation of secrets hidden away in records. As these records are sold, they start to come out and the secrets are then revealed to people like me who are lucky enough to see them. I'm going to tell you about uh, a recent purchase. This happened just in the last year. And in this purchase, a a gentleman, uh, middle-aged, I would say, in his uh, late 40s to early 50s, came in with two boxes of records. And he was, uh, I would say, he he looked like kind of a surfer dude. He he looked like um, maybe an elderly manager of a Ron John surf shop or something like that, you know. Uh, he had been probably at it too long, and but he had like feathered blonde hair, a la 1979. He had a white puka shell necklace and a Hawaiian shirt, uh, and uh, you know a moderate tan. But he also was uh, slightly portly, so he was past his prime. But he looked like he had at one time taken a great deal of pride in his youthful vigor and manliness. So I start going through his records and he starts looking around the store. As I go through them, as often happens, items start revealing themselves to me from inside these records. Various notes and uh, drawings and things that he had. But inside one record, uh, particularly, and I believe it was uh, Elton John, uh, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, falls out a Polaroid. And in this Polaroid is a young man, I would say he is 17 or 18, no more than 20, just out of high school or just into college. And he is in repose in a bedroom. And the bedroom is, let me back up and tell you, when you start finding these items, you become a detective and you start looking at them and trying to determine what year it was, what the circumstances were, and all that. And so I, as this, when this picture presented itself to me, I started being a detective with this emotional wallet. And I started looking at it. And there was the, the room he's lying in is uh, wood paneling a la the mid-70s. You, never see it anymore. And on the wall is a poster for the rock band Renaissance and their album Azure D'Or, which came out in 1979. So I am placing this photo to the late 70s to early 80s, 79 or 80. And this young man uh, is lying on this bed. And did I mention he's not wearing any clothes? In addition to this, he has very, very skillfully moved the blanket to where it is obscuring just enough of his private area that this is not an X-rated picture. It's a hard R. 
or a soft R in this case. Either way, it's a very thoughtful picture. He's in a kind of come-hither pose, lying back on this bed, and you can see quite a bit, but not everything. It's a Polaroid, so obviously somebody took this picture of him. I'm wondering, was this a girlfriend slash boyfriend who was getting ready to go off to college and needed a visual reminder of what they'd be missing? Was this him saying, take a picture of me so I can have a record of how amazingly great I look at this period in my life? It's hard to know. As often with these situations, more questions are given than answers. But it's a fascinating one. So I continue going through the gentleman's records. I come up with a stack of things I'm going to buy. I should also mention I had spirited the picture away. Whether I'm going to get this record collection or not doesn't matter. I'm getting this picture because this is part of my detective work, and it's going to go in my found folder. It's part of the theory of the emotional wallet, records where you put things that you would never expect anyone else to ever see. And then he comes back to the counter, and I tell him, and he says, okay, fine. Suddenly it hits me. This is the guy. This is 27 or 8 years later, the same chap who's now a middle-aged dude who looks also kind of similar, but not near, you know. So many things were brought up by this. The passage of time, aging, ego, death of beauty, uh, the death of intimacy, all, all sorts of questions come to mind, and it goes from being... You may think you look at him and have kind of a snicker. It's not that at all. It becomes an incredibly poignant moment when you're looking at someone in two phases of their life based around one thing, which is music and records, and how their life has sort of revolved around it or has stopped revolving around it, and they've given up on the emotional wallet and forgotten what they left in it. And here he is selling it, and here I am, looking at it and pondering the gaping maw of the universe and the passage of time. And that's what it's like working in a record store. This has been Paul Epstein. Thanks for joining me. In our next segment, we're going to hear some music. Michael King is a pretty talented guy. He's a visual artist, a graphic designer, and a musician. His main music project is called Cities of Earth, and it's excellent. The song we're going to hear, however, is from one of his other bands called Dormir. It's called King Briar Plain.
Finally, we take you to a hot backyard in Austin, Texas, where, over the din of screeching birds, Amy Mullen, reader for audiobooks of the Damned, slurps cold beer and reads aloud from the novelization of Footloose by Robert Tyne. He pranced back and forth in the shimmering light, marking the boundaries of the howling music. He felt his frustration and passion simmering within him on a slow boil. Automatically, his hands formed fists and he beat the air, punching out his fury with every thump of the pulsing drumbeat. Then his hands dropped to his waist and he held an imaginary guitar, his fingers twisted and spread wide, following the long, hot, screaming run of the lead guitar. As the music took off, his mind followed the burning, furious heights of sound. With his head thrown back, his eyes tightly clenched, he could only hear the music and see the light behind his eyelids. It seemed as if every one of his muscles was awake, alive, tingling, waiting impatiently for the single from his brain that would set his body free. He stood still, drinking in the music while his body seemed to get tighter and tighter, like a spring pulled taut and a runner waiting for the starting gun. He felt like a rocket in the gantry at Cape Canaveral, poised, ready, ignition, liftoff, Pow! He let himself go, rushing straight up through the music, a whirling, flying burst of energy. He felt wired to it, as if every passionate note and every drumbeat was fed directly into his nervous system, shot up into his brain, then hurled out to his arms and legs. Music and movement took over his body, and he became part of the low bass, the wild lead, and the pounding rhythm. His was a dance of fury and rebellion, of hatred for the twin poisons that Beaumont and fate had mixed within him. He danced wildly to rid himself of these demons and sweat out the poisons. He danced every step he had ever imagined, ever seen, ever done, from hot dog disco to down and dirty rock and roll. He was black and cool. He was Latin and hot, crazy, country, and punky. He was alive and far from his real life in Beaumont. Sweat soaked his shirt and his shoes kicked up gravel, dusting the cuff of his jeans. His eyes were closed, his teeth were clenched, the music crashed over him in an avalanche of sound. He was building to a climax that was a celebration of life, his life. Can you hear it? She had one ear cocked into the wind. Listen, she whispered. What? The train. Far off, from across the empty still night, came the low, sad wail of a train whistle. Ariel ran a few steps toward the track and looked down the dark rails. A single spotlight pushed out against the darkness. Sometimes after football games, we come out here, a few of us, and stand right here next to the tracks. And? And when the train comes, we 
You what? We scream. Scream? Yeah, I saw it in a movie once. You scream from deep down inside. She tapped him on the stomach. From there. Wren stared. You scream? The train was louder now, bearing down on them. You dance. I scream. Ariel jumped out onto the tracks and stood there in a net of bright yellow light. Her hair caught the beam and it shimmered like golden fire. She spread her arms out wide like wings. Ariel, shouted Wren. Ariel. She didn't react. She stood there as if caught, far away in some private dream. The roaring of the train filled his ears. Damn, he yelled and dived for her, tackling her at the waist and pulling her out of the path of the bellowing locomotive. They tumbled, a tangle of arms and legs, on the gravel next to the tracks. The train was clacking by them, the lights of the cars rushing past in a mad, flashing strobe. Ariel was laughing. Holding her in his strong arms, he could feel the tight muscles in her stomach clenching and unclenching, tears of laughter and panic pouring out of her eyes. She flopped onto her back, spread-eagled under the starry sky. Wren raised himself on one elbow to look down at her. The girl was definitely crazy. Abruptly, she stopped laughing and raised her hand to brush the messed-up hair from his forehead. Her hand rested on his cheek. Then she pulled his head down toward hers. Their lips met, smooth and soft. He embraced her with his arms, holding her close, feeling that refreshing sense of calm that comes when an unsolvable problem has finally been figured out once and for all. She didn't make him laugh, and she was still small town, but he knew her, understood her, and could see the impulses that powered her emotions. She was a friend, an ally, a confidant. Ariel rocked slightly in his arms and smiled. And that's all I got for today. Paul Epstein has more writing up at twistandshout.com at their blog over there. And also, you know what? Just go to Twist and Shout and buy some records. For more of Mike King's music, check out citiesofearth.bandcamp.com. Also, check out his graphic design at velveteenrobot.com. And you can hear much, much more of Audiobooks of the Damned at their YouTube channel. Just uh, point your old computer machine over at YouTube and type Audiobooks of the Damned into the search field. The music of Poddington Bear was used to score Paul Epstein's piece. And there's also some Jamaican rock steady music in this episode, partly because it's summer right now and it 
feels appropriate, but also, I just really like Rocksteady. We heard in order, Lynn Teus and the Jets, the Jamaicans, Keith and Tex, and Pioneers. This show was edited and produced by some guy named Josh. Also, this show is a bi-monthly podcast, so we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.